when Melissa Mays was growing up, there was some stuff you just didn't do. I'm originally from the South, so we had well water and, you know, you didn't drink that. In 2009, Melissa, her husband and her three kids moved to a city in Michigan. So when we moved, we had city water and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. She had fresh, clean H2O flowing directly into her taps. (laughs) Melissa couldn't believe it. She started using this water for everything. We had a pool for the kids out in the side yard. We bathed our pets. We also had awesome landscaping going. We didn't think, you know, there would ever be a problem. But in the summer of 2014, when Melissa would turn on her taps, her garden hose, or her shower, she started to notice something different. Some days it would smell like feet. Some days it would smell like dirt. And then other days it would smell like, like straight river. These smells were telling her that something was off. But it wasn't until crazy things started happening that she really began to get worried. My sons would have rashes on their back. And then my hair started falling out in handfuls. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm stressed out. It would be months before Melissa discovered the reason why these things were happening to her and her family. That some people were hiding a secret that would ultimately change her life forever. All I can do is think about all the times I handed that cold glass of clear water to my sons, not realizing. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? You know, I remember drinking from water fountains in school, drinking from the water hose while playing in the summer heat. We didn't think anything of it. It's just what you did as a kid. You weren't thinking about bacteria. As a matter of fact, you were almost encouraged to drink it to build up your immune system. But imagine if there was some real dangerous shit coming out of that water fountain, something that might make you seriously ill. It's hard to imagine, right? Well, the people of Flint, Michigan thought the same. That was until 2014 when officials made a decision that would lead to an entire community feeling cheated out of a basic human right, the right to drink safe water. This is a story of what happens when the people in charge go from minding the bottom line to becoming obsessed with it, when a bad decision motivated by money is allowed to fester and eventually it turns into a lie, when that lie ruins lives and folks are forced to fight back. My name is Kurt Guyette. I am editor-at-large for the ACLU of Michigan. The ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union. It's a nonprofit organization founded in 1920 to defend and preserve the individual rights and liberties guaranteed to every person in the United States. Back in 2014, Kurt was an investigative reporter there. He was working on a story about the emergency management law being used to turn around failing cities in Michigan. So the city of Flint, was one of eight cities in Michigan that the state assumed control of because they were at risk of financial insolvency. Imagine a failing business on the brink of bankruptcy. They're about to be broke. A bunch of consultant types are brought into that business and their only job is to make sure it stays afloat. They pretty much do whatever it takes. Cost-cutting, layoffs, auditing, you name it. Now. Imagine that same thing, but with an entire city. 
It's like in the crime shows when the FBI and the CIA, they come in and take over the case because the local police have screwed things up. In Flint, all the elected officials, the city council, the mayor, they were the locals being taken over. They had no power. These emergency managers were now in charge, and their job is to make sure Flint stays financially solvent, no matter what. Seven of the eight cities taken over were majority-minority populations. To be clear, majority-minority is just a weird way to say mostly black and brown folks. And I'm not exactly surprised to hear that these communities were majority-minority. Of course, the communities most neglected for years on end would also be the ones at risk of going broke. I am surprised, however, by just how much control these unelected emergency managers have. This law gave dictatorial powers to these state-appointed emergency managers. They could do things that even elected officials couldn't do, such as break collective bargaining agreements. They could abolish existing ordinances. They could sell off city assets. One thing that the law said they absolutely could not do was miss a bond payment. And pretty quickly, this emergency manager figures that Flint is paying way too much for its water. You see, for around half a century, the city had been buying its water from Detroit, whose prices have been creeping up. So now, officials in Flint had decided they wanted to source it themselves. And to do that, they needed to build a new pipeline from Lake Huron, which is about 70 miles away. But that would take a couple of years. And by that time, Flint would be in even more debt to Detroit. So they hatched the plan. In order to save about $5 million over a two-year period while a new pipeline was being built, made the decision to stop using the Detroit system and begin using the Flint River as the source of drinking water for a city which at that time was about 100,000 people. The Flint River, a 78-mile stretch of water that snakes its way through the heart of these industrial Rust Belt cities outside Detroit. These kinds of places are built on car manufacturing. Flushing, Genesee, and yep, you guessed it, Flint. Even at the time, there was strenuous debate about whether that would actually save money or not. But what it did do was gave local control of water and opened the doors to development. So even if switching to the river didn't actually save any money, at least Flint was taking control of its water, they would no longer be at the mercy of Detroit. And that could only be a good thing, right? On April 25th, 2014, Flint officially switched its water source from Detroit to the Flint River. The mayor at the time stood in front of the TV cameras, held his glass of water aloft, and toasted the city. Here's the Flint. But while the politicians and the people in charge were excited about this new beginning, there were a lot of residents in the city who weren't so sure. You would drive over um, the bridge downtown in the summertime and gag because the Flint River smelled so terrible. This is Melissa Mays. My name is Melissa Mays, and I am a Flint, Michigan resident. Melissa lived in the city since 2009 with her husband and her three kids. She loved its music scene and did a lot to champion the place. But she and everybody else in the community 
knew the river to be gross. When you see pictures of this thing, it's hard not to feel a bit creeped out. There are huge factories on either side. The water is dark and opaque. It's not exactly inviting. And to drink it? Nah, I don't think so. Downtown, you very rarely saw fish, if any, living creatures in the river. And when Melissa says any living creature, she means any living creature. And that's where people would find bodies. People were outraged from the very beginning that they would even contemplate using a river that for decades was the, essentially the sewer system for industry. And it was the very same car industry that had been polluting the river for years who first began noticing something had changed. One of the problems with using the Flint River was that because of a, a high salt content, it is incredibly corrosive. So corrosive that General Motors plant in Flint said that the river water was so badly corroding the engine parts before they even got out of the plant that they needed to get back on the Detroit system. This water was essentially eating its way through engine parts. So General Motors is like, uh, about this switch to river water. Yeah, this ain't really working for us. We're going to need that Detroit water for our business. Okay, but what about the people of Flint? No switchback for them. They were forced to carry on like nothing had happened. Until the summer of 2014, a few months after the switch. And that's when Melissa, she started to notice some strange odors coming from her water taps. We play guess what it's going to smell like today. Yeah, see, that's not a game you want to play when it comes to your drinking water. And it wasn't long before Melissa started calling around to the authorities, asking what the hell is going on with her water. This water that her family was using to drink, cook, and clean with every day. They would just say, oh, river water's a little bit difficult to treat. So there wasn't anything official besides, we we got it, don't worry, this is just a bump in the road. A few weeks later, a bump in the road happened that they couldn't ignore. In September of 2014, city officials had to issue boil water advisories after E. coli bacteria was detected in the water basically asking people to boil the water first before they used it. The Michigan Department of Environmental Quality blamed cold weather and aging pipes. Oh yeah? Cold weather, huh? Yeah, let's go with that. Then in January of 2015, around nine months after the switch, Melissa's at home opening a big stack of mail when she spots something from the city council. I almost threw the letter away because it didn't look official. The letter looked like junk mail. It was taped closed, and it just was addressed to resident. And usually when we get those, that means that they're going to try to put another tax assessment on for streetlights. So usually I would look at it, and I would just toss it aside, think, great, they're going to raise my property taxes again. I'm sure we've all got piles of letters like that at home. I know I do. Some credit card offers or cable service upgrades that I don't want, I toss it in the trash. This time I opened it up, and it was just a ton of tiny print, all scientific words basically saying for the past nine months your water's been in violation of the Safe Drinking Water Act, but you're probably fine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. What? Violation of the Safe Drinking Water Act? Okay, let's rewind for a minute here. Way back in the early 1970s, researchers discovered that the chlorine they were using to disinfect reacts with the organic material in the water and creates these chemicals called trihalomethanes, or THMs, which we now know cause cancer. 
And yes, I had to look up the pronunciation, and I'm still insecure about it. The Safe Drinking Water Act was passed in 1974 in response to the cancer-causing chemicals. Fifty years later, Melissa receives this letter that basically says her water is in violation of this law. I called my doctor. He said, I don't know what that is, but if they're saying this, that means your water's bad. And Melissa wasn't the only one in Flint who had received that letter. Thousands of Flint residents, including Melissa, her husband, and her three kids, had all been drinking water containing these chemicals known to cause cancer. There was absolute outrage when that was discovered, and they began turning out en masse at these public meetings, waving these jugs of water that, you know, people described as being like swamp water. You can see footage online of these residents showing up to council meetings with bottles of this liquid. This stuff looked like urine samples. You know, it was water that you wouldn't give a pet, let alone a a human being, and people were being expected to, to drink it. And not only drink it themselves, but give it to their families. Instead of giving my kids pop and sugary juices, I gave them water. Melissa was trying to do the right thing by her kids, keeping them hydrated with good, clean H2O instead of all that unhealthy stuff with tons of sugar. She was using the water to make them home-cooked meals, and she was making sure they took a bath every night. I was furious because they lied to me, and it made me give my children something that they said was safe that was absolutely not. In March of 2015, nearly a year after the switch, members of the elected Flint City Council voted to go back to using water from Detroit, back to the clean water they had been using for over 50 years. But then the governor and his unelected emergency manager said, up, inconceivable, that's too expensive, no. So that was it. In the face of everything, the emergency manager had overruled. Flint was going to carry on using the river. And things were about to get much worse. That's coming up after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's 2015. Flint's unelected emergency manager has just overruled a unanimous decision made by the city council to switch Flint's water away from the river and back to Detroit. And there wasn't really anyone who could do anything about it. Melissa felt helpless. She had decided to take matters into her own hands at this point. She called the only person she knew would help. 
I reached out to Aaron Brockovich. Yep, you heard that right. Aaron Brockovich. She pretty much wrote the book on contaminated water. If you remember the film, Aaron, played by Julia Roberts, takes on this huge corporation, Pacific Gas and Electric, after discovering they're poisoning a local community. So before you come back here with another lame-ass offer, I want you to think real hard about what your spine is worth, Mr. Walker. It's pretty badass. So it makes sense why Melissa would want her advice. And one day, Aaron calls her back on her home phone. And she asked me to go to the water treatment plant to get a few things. Aaron was telling her she needed to get her hands on some data. The data that showed how the authorities were treating this water. So I pretended to be a student and uh, go on a tour of the water treatment plant. And they gave me, like, the raw water data. But Melissa had no idea what she was supposed to be looking for. So Aaron introduced her to Bob Bocock, an expert in water treatment who had spent years working alongside Aaron. So I sent him all the data I could get so he could explain to me what this meant. Bob and Melissa spoke back and forth pretty much every day. He was shocked by what he was seeing in the water. So shocked, in fact, that he decided to fly to Flint and address the public himself in an open forum. It was packed. Flint residents just wanting to know what's going on. And he explained, he said, you have orange and brown water, but the more dangerous things are the ones you can't see. The more dangerous things? What the hell else could be in the water? He said, lead, you know, all these other contaminants, they don't have a taste, color, or odor. They already knew it contained E. coli and carcinogens. Now it looked like the water in the city might contain lead. I remember growing up being told not to eat old paint that had chipped off the walls because it had lead in it. But why exactly was lead so dangerous? Turns out, it's an extremely toxic metal. When ingested, it's distributed around the body, attacking the brain, liver, kidney, bones, central nervous system, you name it. And this has serious long-term health implications. And Melissa had definitely started to notice a difference in her physical well-being. First, it started off as, you know, rashes. And I I try to make a joke like I have leprosy because I just had skin peeling off on my cheekbone. Yeah, I get the joke. It's kind of funny in the you got to laugh to keep from crying kind of way. But this shit really ain't funny. Urgent Care had told me to get um, a humidifier. So I put the tap water into the humidifier and I'm blowing that right into my face, not realizing I'm just sending all those chemicals and bacteria, all that stuff right to my face. I was making myself more sick. But what was more worrying to Melissa was the mental effect it seemed to be having on her family, especially on her kids. My son had to go into speech therapy. He started losing words, my youngest. You know, my oldest, he had to basically get up early in the morning and redo the assignments he did the night before because he couldn't remember them. As painful as what Melissa and her family were experiencing, she realized there was even more destruction in her community. She went to her first protest and asked the other demonstrators some questions. What I found was that people were having hair loss, breathing problems, um, miscarriages, bone pain, muscle pain, brain fog, kidney problems. We all had similar problems, but we were different races, ages, genders, lived in different parts of the city. And I'm like, oh, my God. Demonstrations in Flint were starting to grow larger, more frequent, angrier. And by now... The whole town was talking about lead. But 
how was the lead finding its way into the water? Well, we have to go all the way back to 1897 when the city of Flint passed an ordinance requiring that all connections with any water mains shall be made with lead pipe. Obviously, sections of the pipes have been replaced since then, but Flint, like many other places, have persisted with using lead to connect water around the city. You remember how the General Motors factory asked to switch back to Detroit because the river water was corroding their engine parts? Well, it turns out that highly corrosive salty river water was flowing through Flint's ancient lead plumbing system. It was literally eating the inside of the lead pipes and absorbing all of the toxic metal on its way into people's homes. The lead water had found its way into the home of another Flint resident, Leanne Walters. She was absolutely determined, along with others that she was working with, to get to the truth about what was going on. And she eventually found someone at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, an expert named Miguel Del Toro. The Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, was brought in by Nixon in 1970. One of his jobs is to set and enforce the standards of the Safe Drinking Water Act on a federal level. This is the law that Flint's water was in breach of. So Leanne contacts Miguel Del Toro, one of the agents at the EPA, and he agrees to go over to her house. And they conducted a, a series of tests of the, of the water and found astronomically high levels of lead. The highest sample contained levels of of lead in excess of 11,000 parts per million. At 5,000 parts per million, it is considered hazardous waste. So Leanne and her family were consuming more than double the level of lead considered hazardous waste. Mr. Del Toro also uh, began questioning the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality They were the people in charge of actually testing the water in Flint and making sure it was safe. And after first giving Mr. Del Toro evasive answers, uh, state officials finally admitted the truth, which was that there was no corrosion control chemicals at all being applied to this water. No corrosion control at all? So wait a minute. This water that they knew was highly corrosive was just being pumped into the city, into people's bodies without any treatment whatsoever. But the people of Flint still needed proof. Not proof of high lead levels coming from one or two houses, but from the entire city. And to do that, they would need to organize. By this time, Kurt wasn't just reporting on the story for the ACLU. He was on the front line fighting alongside these residents like Melissa and Leanne to get to the truth. With the help of Miguel Del Toro from the EPA and scientists at Virginia Tech University, they formulated a plan. We came up with the idea of conducting what ended up being the largest citizen-led testing of a municipal water supply ever undertaken. So Kurt, along with Melissa and a group of other passionate residents, 
began meeting in the basement of a local church to organize the distribution of water test kits. It was almost like an underground resistance movement. These residents knew that for this data to be taken seriously, they needed to do things properly. They could leave no doubts in people's minds. They sent the test out with index cards, sealed the lids so they couldn't be tampered with, and provided information on how to administer the test correctly. Even after they had sent out over 200 tests, they weren't satisfied. We sat down with a map of the city and started pinpointing where every kit had been distributed to. And then looking at the map, we're saying, okay, we're light over here in this part of the city. We're light over here in this part of the city. And then went out, knocked on doors, urging people to allow us to test their water in order to get a truly fair, scientifically valid sample. After they distributed the test, it was now time to wait. Just because they'd sent out these tests doesn't actually mean that people would do them. They thought they'd be lucky to get 50 back. Through the unflagging efforts of, of the Flint residents, we were able to get 277 out of the 300 tests returned. Absolutely remarkable. Damn, 277 out of 300? That's an incredible return. Now they'd be able to prove one way or the other, what was actually happening with Flint's water. That's coming up after the break. By the time that all the, the samples had been collected and analyzed, they had scientific evidence that, on average, the lead levels in the drinking water of the people of Flint were at least twice as high as, as what the, the federal standards allowed. At this point, it's a full-blown crisis. For over a year, an entire city, an entire community, had been dosing themselves daily with lead poisoning. As soon as the results started coming in, the scientists at Virginia Tech were shocked and alarmed and began calling people, letting them know that they needed to stop drinking their water because of how harmful and dangerous it was. Boom. This was the proof they needed. Now they would for sure be able to switch the water back to the Detroit system. The state's response was to, again, really deny that there was a problem, especially linking the problem to their decision to begin using the river, saying, well, if there is a problem, it's because there's, there's just a lot of old lead pipes in Flint. After all this evidence, the state-appointed emergency management was still defending the use of the river. I mean, we have General Motors demanding to stop using the river. Then these cancer-causing chemicals show up. And then the people who were previously in charge, the city council, all vote unanimously to change the water back to Detroit. And now, even after this independent citizen-led investigation into the water proved so convincingly that there was a lead problem, they were still going to carry on. One person who did not ignore Kurt and the rest of the community was a pediatrician in the city named Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. She believed us when we said that the lead levels were extremely high. And what she did was conduct an analysis 
of the blood tests for children that they had access to. And she looked at blood levels of children nine months before the switch to the river and nine months after the switch to the river. Because lead is carried around the body in your blood, and Dr. Mona had access to all of these kids' blood samples, it seemed like the smart thing to do. And what she found was that the percentage of uh, children with elevated levels of lead in their blood more than doubled after the switch to the river. And just like Melissa's kids, who couldn't remember what homework they had done the night before and forgetting their words, kids all over the city were now experiencing these symptoms. The need for special education had skyrocketed over the last year. Kids' IQs were lower, their behavior was getting worse. Because that's the thing about lead poisoning. It's most harmful to developing brains. The developing brains of children. There's a big difference between telling people there's lead in their water and lead in their kids. And that is when really the, the, the dam started to break. Around 18 months after the water switch, November 2015, Governor Rick Snyder called a press conference announcing that Flint was going to be allowed to switch back to the Detroit system. They finally admitted there was lead in the water. Government failed you, federal, state, and local leaders, by breaking the trust you placed in us. They did not want to take responsibility for the fact that it was a state-appointed emergency manager and not the Flint City Council that made the decision to switch to the river because they knew, they knew what was coming. They knew the scope of the disaster that was on their hand. Oh, no, 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 no. The emergency manager and the state was trying to shift blame back onto Flint. Even though the city had been under this emergency manager at the time they'd signed up to use the river. Governor Snyder was now in damage control mode. He ordered the distribution of filters and the expansion of water and blood testing. The Michigan Department of Environmental Quality admitted publicly that their staff at the water treatment plant hadn't used any corrosion control that they knowingly distributed this water and were aware of the impact it might have. The head of the department, Dan Wyant, he resigned, as did a whole load of other people. And in January of 2016, President Obama declared a state of emergency in the city of Flint, allowing up to $5 million in aid. Well, it is good to be back in Flint, Michigan. But what about the lasting effects of all this? Melissa's kids still have lead stored in their bones. And they're able to pass the lead poisoning down to their son, down to their son. So that's three generations of boys that they're going to have this issue. It's not like they can just stop drinking the water and it's all over. These folks will continue to have the lasting impacts of this, and so will their children and grandchildren. It's a legacy of poison. And it's not only the physical impact, but the mental trauma experienced by parents like Melissa. We have the moral injury of being told the water was fine and handing it to our kids. And I know I didn't poison my kids. My brain could tell me that. But my heart, all I can do is think about all the times I handed that cold glass of clear water to my sons, not realizing that we had so many dangerous contaminants inside of it. The financial effects are also still being felt. We currently pay the highest rates in the United States 
for water that we still cannot safely use without filtration or bottled water because even though they did switch us back to Detroit after 18 months, the damage was done to the infrastructure. So you could put God's perfect spring water through it and they're going to contaminate the water because the pipes are corroded. And to this day, the authorities still haven't replaced all of the lead plumbing. I didn't do this. You know, you break it, you buy it. Well, the city and state broke us. They broke our homes. They broke our pipes. They broke our bodies. They should have to pay for it. But they've spent, you know, tens of millions of dollars of our tax money to fight against doing what's right. Because nobody wanted to admit fault for all of this. And when nobody admits fault, all that means is that the people of Flint, the victims of all this, they never really get closure or justice. What started out as a cost-cutting exercise led to a complete mistrust between the people and the folks supposed to be governing them. Some of the consequences can't be quantified. The human suffering, the, the deaths, the illnesses, the, the heartache, all the stress and trauma that this created is beyond calculation. But in pure financial terms, the state of Michigan agreed to a settlement in this class action lawsuit in excess of $640 million. So this switch to the river that was supposed to save $5 million has ended up costing everyone $640 million? And this story isn't over. The people of Flint, like Melissa, are still fighting for accountability and justice. And it's not just Flint. It's also my neighborhood, right here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn recently ranked highest in the percentage of schools in New York with contaminated water fixtures. Turns out, lead-contaminated water is a problem all over the country. And the biggest victim is the people with their whole lives ahead of them the people with the ability to pass this lead poisoning on to generations not yet born, our kids. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. So people will steal a car, go for a joyride, and just leave it. And... We could sit back in our couches and sort of think about it and say, like, oh, that's crazy. Why would you commit a serious felony for a few minutes of fun? That's a bad risk to take. But people feel this headiness, this thrill. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Tom Fuller. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, and Ella McLeod. 